morning's passage comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. You can find it in your bulletin, or you could follow along in your own Bibles. Luke 7, 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion who had a servant was, who was sick and at the point of death, it was highly valued by him. The centurion heard about Jesus. He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, Arise. The dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you've revealed yourself and for the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord God, as we look at this passage, that you would show us more of him, that you would make us more like him, that you would glorify yourself through this, your word. Speak to us this morning by your spirit, we ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke now for three months. We come to the seventh chapter. But if you step back for a second and you consider the story that has been unfolding in this Gospel, you realize that there are still many lingering or looming questions about Jesus. Many questions that have yet to be answered. Consider this. Uh, Christ 
conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is announced in Luke chapter 1 and 2. He is tempted by Satan. He emerges from the wilderness and he begins performing miracles. And these miracles are of the nature that they are supernatural and they're miraculous, and yet they kind of allow Jesus to fly under the radar. And Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 6 and 7, and the people are beginning to ask, who is this guy? Because he's miraculous enough to know there's something special about him, yet there's enough we don't know that makes us wonder exactly who he is. In the verses that follow this account this morning, the followers of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they ask the very important question, are you the one who is to come? Or is there another? It's kind of like they're saying to Jesus, are you who we think you are? Or are you not who we think you are? Make it clear. One of the beautiful things that comes out of this passage this morning is that it is always those who are most desperate and helpless to whom Jesus most clearly reveals himself. It is always to those who are most desperate and helpless to whom Jesus most clearly reveals himself. That's the centurion and the widow. Pictures of helplessness and desperation. This past week, I had uh, the privilege of going to visit an old friend I've known this man uh, for many years, and uh, he was a regular attender here at Mercy for some time, but about a year ago, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he's since moved back to be with his parents in Northern Virginia, and he has stage four cancer. So if you think of it, pray for him. His, his name is James, but I went to visit him on Wednesday. We spent the day together. We talked about things that are super significant and things that weren't significant at all. We had a great conversation through the whole day. But when I left, I, I wrote him a message and I said, you know the thing that stood out to me? I've known you for a long time and I've known you to be a Christian, but in your words and in your actions today, I have seen more clearly Christ than I have ever seen him in you. In the assurance that you have of your salvation, in your focus on your future hope, in your confidence in the work of Christ in you, I have seen him more clearly and it was a great joy. To witness him in you. See, we see it all the time in those who are most desperate, who most know their need of Christ. It is to them that Christ reveals himself. And the beauty of that is that we can kind of sit and look over their shoulders and we can see Christ. We can eavesdrop on the conversation between the centurion and the widow. We can witness it in the lives of others who are clearly seeing Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. And so in the passage this morning, in the life of the centurion and the widow, we begin to see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly than we have yet seen him in the Gospel of Luke. And let me tell you what this passage reveals about Jesus. First of all, we see more of the mercy of Christ. And that's the first point on the outline. We see more of the mercy of Christ Consider the two accounts that we read this morning. First of all, in verse 1, it says that Jesus was in Capernaum. This is the northernmost part of Israel. It's where Jesus spends most of his ministry. 
in the northern part of Israel. And in verse 2 it says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now centurion is an officer in the Roman military. And centurions were placed in the places that the Roman government ruled over to ensure and protect the interests of Rome. And so here is this military officer, a Gentile of the Roman military who stands before Christ now. And he has this servant who the passage says was sick and was highly valued by the centurion. And Matthew adds in his gospel that not not only was this man sick, but he was paralyzed and he was tormented in his soul. Sounds like he's in a pretty bad way, okay? And the passage says that he was highly valued by the centurion, but lest you get the idea that this is a a proprietary value, like, man, he's a really good worker, the, the passage actually says in the Greek that he was cherished and beloved by the centurion. The, the, the idea that's communicated in the original language is that he was, he was beloved. He was like a son to the centurion. And as we continue reading in verse thir- 3, it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. What we begin to find out about the centurion is that he was a God-fearer. That he had seen the God of Israel and he said, whoa, this is the God, the real God. And so he respected the people of Israel. He worshipped the God of Israel. He sends the leaders of the synagogue to intercede on his behalf before Jesus. And the leaders of the synagogue, what do they do? They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you've got to come help this man. He is worthy. And by that they mean he's worth your time. He is worth your time. And you could probably imagine Jesus' response, right? Jesus thinking, okay, guys, really he's worthy? Do you realize who I am? No man is worthy. That's not how I decide who to heal and who not to heal. That's not where I decide when to intercede and when not to intercede. And yet Jesus goes. He doesn't say any of those things. It's interesting that just a verse later, the centurion would say, I am not worthy. It's a very different perception of himself than the the leaders of the synagogue did. But they say, listen, he built for us our synagogue. He is worthy. And the most amazing thing is that Jesus goes, and when he meets this centurion, we'll talk about the exchange they have in a second, but it says in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Jesus marveled at him. The the Bible only says that Jesus marveled two times ever, okay? One time he marveled at their unbelief. Uh, This is the only other time, and he marvels at the faith of the centurion. The word marveled means to stand with your jaw open. It's like being in awe, flabbergasted, dumbfounded, like, really? amazed. So he marveled at the centurion. Now think about now the account in name. Now just hold the idea in your mind for a second. Jesus marvels at the centurion. Think about what happens in the small town of Nain, 20 miles away from Capernaum. Jesus goes, and there as the crowd with Jesus, him and his disciples are entering into the gateway of the city, 
they're about to go through the gate, and what meets them is another crowd coming out of the city. Okay? It's like the collision of two crowds. And what meets them is this procession of people who are carrying this young man, likely a boy, carrying him in his casket to be buried. What we know about this procession, we know exactly what's happening at this moment because the, the burial practices are pretty predictable uh, in ancient Israel. Okay, if someone died, first of all, the family member would prepare the body. They would wash the body and prepare it for burial. That's the first thing they would do. Then they would gather their neighbors and friends and they'd place the body into the casket. Then the body, in the same day, never would it stay in the house overnight, the body would be carried from the family house outside the walls of the city to the family burial site. You had to get the body outside the city. That was what was considered clean. Okay, and so as Jesus meets this procession moving out of the city, we know that this boy has been dead maybe for a few hours, maybe shorter or longer, not more than a day. And he's being carried to the burial site. And there is his weeping mother who was herself widowed and this was her only son. This is very similar to Naomi in the book of Ruth, right? And Naomi says, when her husband is dead and her sons are dead, she says, well, this is the end, I guess. There's nothing more left for us because that son for the widow was her security. He was her safety. He was her provider. He was the one who would feed her. He was the one who would have taken care of her. And so the widow now weeps because her world, for all intents and purposes, had just ended. That was it. In verse 13, as Jesus sees the woman, it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. I love the moments when Jesus has compassion on people. The word that's used here for compassion is a word that means that his inner being, it literally means that his gut, his gut was moved, okay? There's a movement in his gut. He felt it in his innermost being, and he was moved with an outpouring of mercy for the woman. That's what it meant to have compassion. You remember a very similar story when Jesus came upon Lazarus, who had been dead, and he saw Lazarus' family who was mourning and weeping, and it said he had compassion. That's actually a slightly different word that means to utter a groan, okay? But you see the picture that's painted with the English word compassion. To utter a groan, to be moved in your innermost part, to have some turning within you or a churning. This is Jesus being moved in his inner being with an outpouring of mercy for those who are suffering. That's the first thing I want you to know about the mercy of Jesus. This depicts to us the depth or the deepness of the richness of the mercy of the Lord Jesus. So this is what I want you to know. Okay? When, 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 when Jesus begins, he comes down and he takes on human flesh and he begins to interact with us in our humanity. Here's how Jesus sees us. Okay? Here's how he sees the widow and the centurion. Here's why he marvels at the centurion. He sees us as being created in the image of God. Having the seed of beauty and perfection being made as God designed us, but then he sees within us the mixture of brokenness and sin. And he sees us and he says, 
I know how you were designed to be, and I know the tension within you between glory and suffering, between goodness and sin, uh, between beauty and wickedness. And he sees that in the widow, and he sees it in the centurion, and it constantly is moving him. This is the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, which would move him all along in his ministry to the, the time where he would give up his life as a ransom for many because of the mercy that he had in his heart, having compassion on people who were not designed for the suffering, who were not crafted to endure the sin and the brokenness. That's the mercy of Jesus. The second thing we see in this passage is the power of Jesus, okay? We see his mercy, and now we see his power. Consider what the centurion says as he's conversing with the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 6, when Je and Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. The faith that the centurion has, it produces the byproduct of humility. Faith that we have, it has these byproducts, these things that get worked out in us. One of those things is humility. And so the centurion very humbly says to the Lord, listen, you're so great and I am so not great. I am not worthy for you to even come into my house. Therefore, I didn't even come out to meet you because I cannot stand in your presence. It's like Peter on the fishing boat when Jesus comes to him and he says, Lord, go away from me for I am a sinner. The humility of the heart of faith comes out of the centurion here. And what does he say to Jesus? He says something really important that tells us he recognizes something of who Jesus is. He says to Jesus, say the word. Say the word and, and my servant will be healed. Don't come to my house. You don't even have to come near me. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And think about the analogy that the centurion gives here. Think about this analogy. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Do you get the picture that he just painted? It's actually a really powerful picture, okay? The centurion is painting this analogy. Jesus, you say the word and my servant will be healed because you know what? I know I'm a man in authority as well and I can say to a soldier, go, and he goes, come, and he comes. He is saying to Jesus, you may speak and heal my servant because the powers that are beneath you they kneel at your voice and they do your bidding. So whereas I say to a soldier, go and he goes, come and he comes, you say to the forces of nature or to the forces of medicine and health and goodness or to all of creation and nature and physical reality, you say to them, come and they come and go and they go. Therefore, speak the word, 
and my servant will be healed. I don't know how deep is the faith of the centurion, but I know one thing. More than maybe anyone else in the Gospel of Luke thus far, he has rightly recognized the authority of the Lord Jesus. A dominion over all creation. And what is the beautiful irony of the story of the centurion? Jesus doesn't say the word. Right? He doesn't say, be healed, servant. He sends the people back to the house, and the servant is healed. That, in my mind, is like Jesus saying, yeah, I could say it, but I don't even need to say it. My authority is beyond even saying it. And they go back, and the servant is healed. What is implied by the interaction with the centurion is put on plain, full display in the activity that happens in the town of Nain. Jesus has compassion on the widow. And it says that he approached the procession. And he lifted up his hand and he placed his hand on the casket that was being carried. And he said, with the word of his voice, he said, young man, arise. And it says the man sat up and he began to speak. A man who had been dead for hours. Okay, Rigor mortis beginning to set in in his body. Marching towards the grave. His mother weeping over him. Jesus places his hand on the casket. Young man, arise. And the man sits up. And the question that begins to be answered here in the Gospel of Luke is a question of how powerful actually is this Jesus. Because thus far, he's healed a man with a withered hand. He's healed some paralyzed folks. He's healed, healed some of their infirmities. He has caused the fishing net to be filled with like a ton of fish. He has done these things, but you know what? They're kind of similar to some of the prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah had done some similar things. And so the question is, how powerful is this Jesus? And he says to the man who had been dead, arise, how powerful is Jesus? He has authority even over life and death. He has authority even over life and death. You know what? I don't know an image in all of creation, in all of humanity, that would be better to communicate the extent of the authority of Jesus Christ than being able to speak and cause a dead thing to have life. You think about this. We, we, if you watch superhero movies, I don't watch many, okay, but I understand I've be, been learning that there is a Marvel Cinematic Universe, okay, I, I, that there's a whole slew of Marvel movies, and the culmination of the Marvel movies is this bad guy named Thanos, okay, you've watched it, you've seen Thanos, and what is the depiction of the greatest power that can be conceived of in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? It is Thanos who can snap his fingers and cause living things to become dead. Just like that. That is, as far as our imagination goes, that is our greatest conception of power. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't snap his fingers and make living things become dead. He speaks by the word of his voice and he makes dead things come to life. And I think 
there's a very good argument for how that is even more powerful than the power to cause death. Anybody can cause death. Who has the authority to bring life to dead things? Only the creator of all that exists. Only the one with authority over life and death. And he speaks the word. And the man arises. Now the last thing I want you to see, I think is the most beautiful thing of this entire exchange, okay? The, the beauty of this passage is that these two things come together perfectly in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is the beauty of the gospel that he is all merciful and that he is all powerful. You think about it. You all have probably experienced a lot of power or a lot of mercy, but rarely do we see these things together as we do in the gospel. We maybe have parents, one parent who is all-powerful and one parent who is all-merciful, okay? And what, what that looks like is there's the one, okay, who says, listen, you've broken my rules, now you're going to pay. You're grounded for a year. I can exact my influence over your life. I have authority over you, and I will show you my power. And you're like, show me some mercy. Please be a little merciful. And then the, you've got the flip side, right? We've all experienced people and even parents who have been very merciful but have had no power to affect any change in our suffering. And they're, they're the ones who will cry with us and they'll weep with us and they will sympathize with us and they'll say, I understand. I get it. And we'll say, but what can we do about this? I don't know. I can't really do anything. I'm sorry. There's the, the power and there's the mercy, but the beauty of the gospel is that power and mercy find their completion, their consummation, their finality in this man, God, Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the picture of the centurion and the picture of the widow is the picture of you and I. It is the picture of us in our souls. Their emptiness, their brokenness, their weariness, their wornness, their desperate need, their desperation that's on display here. That is you and I. And we have this great need for a merciful Savior who has the power to do something about our brokenness. Thankfully, Jesus isn't simply merciful. Thankfully, Jesus isn't simply powerful. He is powerfully merciful. He is mercifully powerful. His mercy has teeth. It has ability. It has authority. It can accomplish all things. This is why a Christian's who lose their job, or Christians who are suffering in depression, or Christians who lose a loved one, or Christians who have cancer or a sickness can say, in the midst of the tumultuous storm, that there is peace within their souls. Because there is one who is for them. There is one who has made them a brother, who has the power to do something about their suffering who has authority over life and death. And in this passage, that truth is on full display most clearly in this account 
of the widow in name. You see, because in this passage, there is a foreshadow of things to come. At Calvary, at, at the cross where Jesus would be crucified, that is the greatest consummation of his mercy and power. He goes to the cross for the sake of those whom his heart was being poured out for, and he goes to the cross that his power might be demonstrated in laying down his life that he might have authority over gra the grave and sin and sickness and death. And that event is coming in the Gospel of Luke. Yet in this passage is the beautiful, maybe the most perfect foreshadowing of what was soon to come in the life of Christ. You see, as Jesus enters those gates in the town of Nain, what was happening, and you have to really dig into the passage, what was happening was before the people stood the most clear depiction and image of death itself, okay? This casket held within it the image and the authority of Satan himself who from the garden forward had exerted this influence on all humanity with this iron-type grip that was culminated in death. And like a bell that was chiming hour after hour, ringing before these people and all humanity was the constant reminder of the work of Satan who was bringing death to bear on all of their loved ones and then on them themselves. And before them, like the grim reaper in this coffin, was the greatest image of the authority of death itself that could be conveyed to humanity. And Jesus walks up to the image of death. And he walks up to Satan himself. And he lifts up his hand, the hand that would be pierced for our transgressions. He lifts up his hand and he touches the casket, the unclean casket, the thing you couldn't touch. And he touches the casket and it says that the pallbearers, they came to a screeching halt. They stood still. And I think they understood something of the cataclysmic event that was happening before their eyes that the Lord of life came up to the representation of death itself and he placed his hand upon the casket. And in saying to the man, young man, arise, he was actually saying to Satan, release him. Let go of him. And Satan, like a powerless child, knelt his knee before the Lord of life and he said, he's yours. You may have him. And Satan yielded his authority and power to the Lord God. See how beautiful that is in this town of Nain? How in a few short words, the very depiction of life, very life of very life, collides head on with the very depiction of death and he exerts his authority over the ruler of this world, and he says, no more. You will come no further. And the man arises. And as I say to you this morning, this is a future promise of things to come. This is the down payment. This is the deposit 
This is the assurance. Because as you read this passage, and you see the mercy of the Lord Jesus, and you see the power that's on display here, the question then becomes not if, but when. When will he deal the fatal blow to our old adversary, the devil? When will he finally bring an end to it? Because it is coming. When will he bring an end to our suffering and sin? So as we conclude here looking at this passage, we're standing now in the shadow of Easter, three weeks from now, two weeks from now, we will celebrate the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here before us is the assurance of those things that would come to pass. That the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect mercy and by his perfect power would lay down his life knowing that we needed him, having mercy on us and compassion, he would lay down his life as a ransom for many. And then he would take it back up again with power and authority, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the dominion of this world and saying to Satan himself, no further, no more, bringing life to death. So this morning, let us remember that it is the mercy of Jesus and the power of Jesus met perfectly in the cross of Christ for the redemption of the people of God. And to this we say hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he has come and that he has come in power, but not just power, he has come with mercy. And where mercy and power meet, is the beauty of the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your heart was moved, that your innermost being was turned, that you, that you groaned on our behalf. And we think of the cross. It was on the cross that your, your last groanings for us were recorded in this, your word. And on the cross, compassion and mercy met power. And these things were poured out that we might be saved. And so we thank you that just like the widow this morning, we are so needy and desperate. We thank you that you have saved us in our neediness and desperation. And we pray, Lord God, that you would make that so real to our hearts. I thank you for the eyes of Christians who have come before us, even Christians who are now our brothers and sisters, in the midst of their suffering, how they have given us clarity on you, how they have seen you, and now they testify to you. May you be glorified, Lord God, as we sing your praises, our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen.